The Colorado Behavioral Health and Wellness Summit brought clinicians, educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders in the field of behavioral health together at the University of Denver. The summit was a collaboration between the Mental Health Center of Denver, the University of Denver, and Envision U, who were gracious enough to invite the Emergency Medical Minute to record the event and share it with you all. Here's Sarah Davidon the Director of Research and Child Adolescent Strategy at Mental Health Colorado, with her presentation on children's mental health, rethinking the role of schools and the mental health system for children. Well, welcome. I apologize. We were going to have two of us here, and I'm going to wander a little bit, if that's all right. Um, we're going to have two of us here, but um, my colleague, um, who's also named Sarah, Sarah Youngren, who you see up here, um, has a sick child at home. So um, I completely appreciated that because I have two children of my own um, and fortunately who are not sick. So um, I'm going to just go ahead without her. She's been doing, I'll talk a little bit about the work that we've been doing. Um, she's been doing a lot of work directly with schools. So we're going to miss a little bit of that perspective of some of our direct contacts we've had with school districts. Um, but I can try and fill in some of that. Um, so I'd love to just start with some um, introductions. So um, I'm Sarah Davidon, the other Sarah up here. And um, I'm with Mental Health Colorado. And I'll tell, talk to you a little bit about what Mental Health Colorado does, but then really want to make sure we get into the meat of things around school mental health. Um, so, um, so what um, I'm hoping to do as we move through the next hour or so, um, or th three, three main things. And if there's anything that's not up here that you were really hoping uh, that this would be, will you tell me that? The first was looking at um, mental health as sort of a, children's mental health particularly, as a continuum of care. I think often when we think of mental health, we go immediately to that sort of deep end kind of disease-driven illness Whereas um, I really want to encourage us all to think about mental health as sort of a full spectrum where we all have health, just like we all have physical health, we all have mental health. Um, and to really think about it in that um, sort of broader sense rather than going straight to um, kind of illness when we think of uh, the words mental health. The second is, um, is it easier if I stand over here? The second is identifying collaborative system and practice essentials. So looking at um, like what are the things that we want to make sure are in place? What kinds of things, if we could say we have the strongest community around children's mental health, what would that look like? And then the third is to recognize what role do schools play in that? Um, and I think it's really important, and you'll hear me emphasize this throughout the next hour, is that um, schools are just a part of where supports can be provided and that really has to be nested in a whole in the sort of like the ecosystem of the community. Schools can't do this alone. Um, so even though I'm going to be talking a lot about the role of schools and school mental health, um, that's in the context of, of the understanding that um, this really is sort of a community-wide effort um, to, to sort of fill in the continuum of programs and system components that are in a continuum of care. So Mental Health Colorado um, is, uh, are any of you familiar with Mental Health Colorado? We've got one. Um, so we're a, a kind of an advocacy and policy organization, but we focus on, we're nonpartisan, but we do a lot of work over at the state capitol. We do a lot of work around um, uh, develop, helping legislators develop and um, hopefully pass legislation that relates to mental health and substance use. So we, um, our work is not just around, um, you know, making sure that people get treatment when they need it, but it's also, as you can see here in our state mission statement, is promoting mental health, ending the stigma around talking about mental health and, and substance use, um, and also ensuring equitable access to mental health and substance use services if they're needed. But um, but we really um, are are emphasizing the promotion work, particularly in our children's mental health work that that sort of promotion end and prevention end is very important. So if you, and those who I saw this morning might um, have already seen this, but if you don't know sort of why we're particularly wanting to focus on sort of school age, so half of all mental health conditions um, actually show some sort of sign or symptom before the age of 14. 
Um, and if you think about where kids are before the age of 14, they're spending the majority of their waking hours in school. And by young adulthood, so around by the age of around 24, um, 75% of lifetime mental health um, conditions uh, have manifested. Um, they're not necessarily diagnosed by then, but they're typically fully sort of um, um, are fully sort of showing themselves by the time people reach the age of 24. But that that four, age 14 with half of mental health conditions, I think, is particularly important to think about um, as we're thinking about the role of schools. So. Let's start with this um, sort of the model of what a continuum of care could look like. So you'll see here that I started with health promotion and went, go all the way through to what I'm calling post-intervention recovery and maintenance of health. So there's a lot of stuff that can happen in that continuum between promotion and um, sort of postvention. So. Um, what I'd like to do is go through each of these and um, sort of talk through some strategies that um, communities can have in place, but then particularly highlight the ones where schools could play an important role. Um, so when we think about health promotion, like what kinds of things do you think about when we're talking about health promotion? I'll give you some hints. <laughs> This is around mental health. But I mean, just in general, not even thinking about mental health. If I said health promotion to you, what would you think of? Wellness programs, yeah. Maybe nutrition programs. Um, sort of USDA recommendations around, uh, you know, like the, the food plate, like that. Going to the doctor regularly, bringing your kids to well-child visits. I'm sure you're familiar with those at this point. <laughs> um, so things like that. So that's health promotion. So there are things that universally um, everybody too. We want all children to have access to. Um, so when we're talking about mental health, and particularly in, um, I'll, I'll point out some particularly for schools. So in mental health, health promotion is. Um, to, uh, sort of covering things like encouraging and increasing protective factors and healthy behaviors that can contribute to sort of good social emotional development um, and positive mental health. So this isn't necessarily about disease prevention. It's about health promotion. And that may sound nuanced, but there's a difference there. So also things like creating living conditions and environments that support um, mental health and allow people to adopt and maintain healthy lifestyles. So um, things like wellness programs, um, community recreation centers, uh, having access to walking trails in our neighborhoods, um, those contribute to physical health, but they also can contribute to our mental health and well-being. I mean, there's research that shows that being out um, and being outside and being exposed to sunshine and getting exercise and having phys physical activity has a lot to do with our mental health as well. So when I go through each of these, and feel free to jump in and stop me and ask questions or give, give your own examples, but as I go through these, I just wanted to give you um, sort of an orientation to how I'm going to go through these. So there's sort of the element of the continuum. So here this is health promotion. But then there's like the, okay, so what it, what it means. What are we talking about when we're talking about this um, element related to mental health? And then some examples of these practice essentials. So what could this actually look like in practice? So in health promotion around mental health, this is things like universal social-emotional screenings. So if you think about, um, so you said your child is 18 months, so probably hasn't um, experienced this yet. Who, does anybody have a child in, the, in a public elementary school? So do you remember like the hearing and vision screenings that they do every year? Pretty standard, right? Um, where you don't like say, oh no, I don't want my child screened, and the school doesn't say, no, we can't screen your child, we're afraid we'll find a vision problem. They don't do that, right? But think about mental health and social-emotional health. So if we said, which we actually were trying to do, we said we would like all schools to do a universal social and emotional screening for every child who comes into the public school system. They freak out. Um, and 
I shouldn't say all the day. We have some amazing school districts who actually are doing universal social-emotional screening. But we have a systemic problem with it, though, which is we don't have the array of eye doctors and audiologists in our communities. Um, we don't have our array of mental health providers as we do with the eye doctors and audiologists in our communities that we would refer people to for hearing and vision screening. So we have a capacity issue, which I think is very concerning to schools, that if they do a screening, what's next? Because screening isn't just a point in time, it's got to be a process. So some issues to think about around that. Things like preschool and early, early learning programs, having universally available early learning to those who want it. Um, home visitation, family support programs. So, yeah, so things like housing, things like transportation, food, um, uh, health care. Some of those things that foundationally, it's very hard to get to, you know, good emotional and social and mental health and wellness if we don't have sort of our basic needs um, met, if we don't have a roof over our heads or food or transportation or, uh, you know, some of those essential elements. Community development programs, violence prevention, um, sort of, you know, then the list goes on. So what I'd like to highlight are those that are particularly relevant to schools. So we've got the ones that are wiggling. So universal social emotional screening, that could happen in schools. We've got preschool and early learning programs. Um, Violence prevention programs, those can happen in schools and are. Um, ecological changes in schools, so looking at sort of just how our schools, our, our school environment, sort of the climate and culture um, in schools. Uh, Social-emotional curriculum. More and more schools are implementing a social-emotional curriculum either as a standalone class. Um, I'm very fortunate that both of my kids who are now in middle school have a, had a, an intentional social-emotional learning class um, that's one of their electives. So although I guess they're not called electives because they have to take it. Um, so it's whatever the classes are that you are assigned that's not like your basic academic courses. Um, having a mental health curriculum, which is different than a social-emotional curriculum, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but um, just to sort of give you a gist of that, if you think about social-emotional learning, that's, you know, that stuff like getting along with others and sort of relationship development and um, kind of executive functioning. Mental health curriculum is a little bit different. That's something that it may look different in elementary school than it does in high school, but it may look like talking about depression, signs of depression, signs of anxiety, resources in the community around mental health, things that are, um, are specific to our mental health and not quite as broad as sort of social-emotional learning. Um, and then positive youth development. So for each one of these, I want to go through some of these elements. So we've got now sort of low intervention. So this might be, an example of this might be um, sort of a, a child who has experienced, um, are you guys familiar with the adverse childhood experiences? Um, sort of the, the sort of, I think there are 10 um, kind of indicators of adversity in a child's um, development. Um, and some of them are sort of more, perhaps more traumatic than others, but children respond differently to different kinds of events. Um, so somebody who may have experienced um, some sort of a risk factor, but perhaps it wasn't, um, you know, not like abuse or neglect, but perhaps it was something um, sort of a little more subtle in, the, in their environment. Maybe they were, um, they experienced uh, uh, you know, several months without health care and, um, were there was some risk involved in that, and maybe they um, there was a lot of sort of family concern, and the child was sort of you know experiencing a lot of that family concern. So there may be some risk factors, but not to the level of you know, you know something like um, um, severe trauma, uh, um, adverse experiences that may have um, sort of actually sort of neurologically changed a child. Um, those we'll get to in sort of the mid-intervention. So for low intervention, these could be things like support group for children who have been exposed to domestic violence, but not necessarily were the, um, uh, the victims of it. Um, early intervention for children who may have been exposed in their household to substance use. Supports and services for kids who have been exposed to some adverse childhood experiences, except some of those would actually be categorized in sort of the next level of risk. Um, and things like um, uh, suicide risk assessment. So for um, 
and unfortunately now for elementary school children as well. Um, you, I don't know if you all sort of know some of our statistics around suicide in our state, but it's the number one cause of death for children ages 10 to 24. Um, so, and we're in the top 10 in the nation for suicide deaths. So it's a, it's a significant issue nationally and in our state. Um, and there are some things that we can be looking for and that schools can be looking for around suicide risk. So doing, so for this sort of low intervention, doing something like a suicide risk assessment, um, not when someone's in crisis, because that would bring us up to sort of one of the next levels. Um, but just if there's, um, you know, huh, I've noticed that, uh, you know, this person hasn't been, um, you know, has been consistently kind of, kind of coming in late to class and has been skipping going outside and playing with his friends and has been sitting in the, uh, you know, by himself in the cafeteria. Um, and then there, you know, there may need to be some sort of um, low-level intervention at that point. So then we look at moderate interventions. So moderate interventions are for higher-risk kids identified as having sort of detectable signs of mental, emotional, or behavioral challenges, but who might not meet like a diagnostic criteria. So it might not be as clear as, oh, this is bipolar disorder, or, oh, this is um, a significant depression. But something is needed here. So there's some sort of intervention that's needed. There's some sort of sort of manifestation of, like, behavior or uh, sort of emotional state that, um, that puts the kid maybe at a little bit higher risk. So some of the things that could really help support children at this level... Um, and children and families. And I never want to talk about sort of the kids, particularly younger kids, without it being in the context of their families. Um, so programs that could support social skills, um, coping, so kids who are involved in child welfare, who may be experiencing some um, sort of behavioral challenges that have kind of manifested because of their experiences in the child welfare system. School-based supports and services. Um, so often kids at this level, um, at that sort of like that moderate intervention level, might have an individualized education uh, program, so an IEP. Um, and that can be a way of, and that obviously is one that could happen in schools and does happen in schools, that could be a way of identifying some of the um, supports that might be needed in order for this child to get what they need when they're in their academic environment. Um, individual and family therapy. That might be warranted for um, moderate intervention. And I'm, I'm naming some examples, um, but keeping in mind a couple of things. One is that um, not everybody would benefit from all of these things. And also, at each of these levels, you may see that I'm not including the things from the previous levels here, because the assumption is we want to make sure all of these things are in place, even if there's sort of a, this moderate intervention need. We want to make sure that there are um, all of these other supports that we've already identified that are in place. We don't want to lose these just because we're going to this level. The other thing I want to point out is, even though this I kind of developed this in a linear way, this isn't necessarily linear. Um, kid may experience something and may skip right past this low intervention and go right to either moderate or high intervention. So there might be something traumatic that happens. So it doesn't necessarily mean that in order to go from um, sort of this, you know, sort of typical child development, healthy environments, um, to needing some more sort of higher intervention, that, oh, wait, we've got to go through this, and then we've got to go through this, and, that's, and it's artificial to think that it would happen like that. Okay. So then um, this higher intervention element... So this is when um, sort of interventions might really be needed in order to um, kind of lessen the effects of a um, usually a diagnosed sort of mental health condition or something that might not be diagnosed, but you know and you can identify that there are really high levels of distress. Um, and so this could be like psychosocial distress and not have a mental health diagnosis. So that could include both of those things, and particularly in school environments where, um, so those of you who have either worked in or know a little bit about sort of how the um, sort of special education system works, um, so 
So schools have a diagnostic category, it's not diagnostic, have an eligibility criteria of um, uh, serious emotional difficulty. So what that means is that the child has had enough um, uh, sort of interfering either behaviors or sort of emotional challenges that it's interfering with their education. Um, it's not a diagnosis. It doesn't mean that a child has, um, you know, a DSM diagnosis. It just means that the school has identified that there's enough sort of serious emotional difficulty that's interfering with the um, achievement in schools or, or functioning in schools. So, um, but sometimes that doesn't match up with um, sort of what's happening in the outside world. So a, a child may actually have a mental health condition, but the school might not identify that as interfering with their educational achievement and their functioning in school. So a child with a mental health issue may actually not get the special education services that they perhaps might need because the, the, sort of the criteria don't really match up. So something to think about, too, is that are there things that we can do um, outside of our special education system to support children who might have mental health challenges? Um, and I think that sort of gets into some conversation about what should, what can, you know, some of those universal things that all teachers can be putting in place. Um, but also, are there any specialized um, uh, supports that, um, that schools could have available, uh, like, you know, a social worker to go to um, and accessibility for that, to that social worker throughout the day if a student needs it, things like that. So this, for high intervention, this could include things like crisis response, um, making sure that, um, so in a school setting, making sure that every student knows what they would do if there were something, um, sort of, like a, if somebody was in mental health distress. Um, who to call, and, and in most schools, they are really good about um, ensuring that people know that there's a crisis um, service line, and there's also safe to tell. Um, have you guys heard of safe to tell? crisis line. So there are two very different functions. So there's something called safe to tell, which is typically just sort of um, uh, uh, used in a school environment. Um, and it's if there's a, um, identification of like something could be dangerous to another student or to the school. So the safe to tell line was set up to really identify, um, you know, if, if somebody's coming in and making a lot of threats. Um, if somebody comes in with a weapon, uh, that safe, the safe to tell um, is a, an immediate response to that that goes out to, so a call comes in for safe to tell, and that goes out to the local law enforcement and the school district. The crisis services um, is very, is a much more sort of clinical therapeutic service. So crisis services is um, a number or a text line that people can call or text, and it can be anonymous, um, to get sort of a more therapeutic response. So the response with crisis services is, I need information about where I to bring my son because he seems to be, um, you know, just sort of out of control and I'm not quite sure what to do and I don't know where to, to bring him. And the crisis services could say, well, we've got a walk-in clinic or you could bring him to Children's Hospital and here are two resources and here's a therapist you could call and sort of goes walks through that with somebody who's in crisis. What a lot of people don't know, and because the name is crisis services, is that they can also just serve as a resource when you're not in crisis. So if there's a mental health question, a mental health sort of resource question, like, you know, boy, I really want to, um, I want to know the, sort of the, the three places in my community where I could take my son because he's had uh, sort of mental health issues in the past, and I want to be prepared next time. Can you help me out? And they'll also respond to those kinds of questions. So this high intervention level could also include things like inpatient treatment, um, residential treatment, the residential educational environment, and, um, and intensive school-based supports and services. And often those would be provided through an individualized education um, program. Okay. Thoughts or questions so far? Right. So then the last part of this continuum of care um, that I wanted to go through. Sort of, so then what? So what do we need um, to have after somebody maybe has experienced some of the things and sort of these 
top two tiers. And, um, and you're going to notice that it's green, just like health promotion was green, because there is a lot of overlap in sort of this post-intervention recovery and maintenance of health. There's a lot of overlap with that and health promotion. So this is essentially about the, the, the side over here and the side over there are really about healthy communities. What do we need to have available in communities to make sure that before intervention is needed and then after something may have happened in the community, we have the resources that are needed in that community. So this could be things like um, step-down and transitional support. So if somebody's been in uh, sort of inpatient psychiatric treatment um, to have some way of um, transitioning, sort of effectively transitioning, if it's a child, that child back into their home school, back into their community. Um, looking at peer support models. So um, there's more and more research now that shows that um, people who are have experienced substance use and mental health conditions themselves um, are actually very effective at um, sort of doing peer counseling with other people who are going through the same thing. So there's been more work now around um, sort of peer support counselors and certification processes around that. Um, and then, as I said, all the items in health promotion as well. So that's sort of the big picture continuum. And so let's focus a little bit more now on, so what happens in schools? So why does this matter in schools? So there are two areas that I want to start with. What it, the first is, so if mental health issues go untreated or unidentified, what are the possible school consequences? What are possible consequences of something that might relate to school or academic performance or things like that? And the second part of it is, if we do successfully identify or treat or have early identification, what can we see happen differently? So in that first bucket about what might it look like if we got this untreated mental health um, stuff going on, so we know that there's more absenteeism, uh, reduced rates of grade completion and graduation, decreased academic performance, increased disciplinary issues, um, and we actually just uh, earlier today at my 8.30 talking, spent about 45 minutes just talking about suspensions and expulsions and discipline practices, um, very often related to unidentified um, kind of behavioral challenges. Um, or mental health conditions. So then also increased juvenile justice involvement. And um, and I put juvenile justice involvement, but now we know that it actually that extends into the criminal justice system as well. So um, if mental health conditions aren't identified and aren't treated early on, um, very often uh, there's that um, kind of school-to-prison pipeline that could happen. So these are kids who may then be thought of as sort of behavioral problems and they may be suspended or expelled. So that's one of the, you know, the disciplinary issues. Um, and then what do they do? There's, you know, so they're not in school. There's not that sort of structured environment where they can learn and, and you know, get those social skills and, and that they need. Um, and those end up often being the kids who then end up getting involved in the juvenile justice system and the criminal justice system. We know that more than 60% of people who are in the um, in jails and prisons are actually I think it's mostly prisons. I don't know if it's jails. Um, don't have a high school diploma, so haven't graduated from high school. So if we look at what's happening, so untreated mental health conditions can link can be linked to um, you know not completing, not graduating high school, and we know that many people who end up in our prison system haven't graduated from high school, you can sort of see that connection there. So what happens if we do identify these things successfully? So if schools are part of this um, sort of set of resources that can help with early identification, what might that look like? Well, effective identification of need, um, better chance that there, a referral will be made, better chance that that child, that student will actually end up at um, a, a, an appropriate provider if there's identification in school. Um, decreased absenteeism, um, reduction of like more complicated systems and costs. Um, very often, 
when identified or treated, um, a mental health issue can be very sort of successfully addressed and doesn't cause sort of ancillary complications if untreated. It can then affect what we talked about earlier in those social determinants of health. So if you think about the intersection of mental health and um, some of these other sort of complicating factors in people's lives around food insecurity and transportation and health care, and, um, this can have a big impact on that. Um, and then also, which is an interesting one, um, reduced teacher turnover and teaching quality, um, which sort of may sound like kind of striking, but if you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, of course. If, if we can address some of these things that look, that might manifest in like behavioral issues in the classroom, then that's pretty disruptive to classrooms. That can be pretty disruptive to teachers. Um, and, and that, some of those things are what um, can lead to higher teacher turnover. So if we can mitigate some of these things, then we can try, we can really help with some of that quality of the classroom and the uh, retention of, uh, of teachers. So in order to um, do some of these things, Mental Health Colorado recently developed a school mental health toolkit. And um, so the, tool, the mental health toolkit has, um, it was developed as a framework for, and the reason I've got this QR code is if you want to take out your phone and just snap a picture of this QR code, I, I don't, I'm not offended if you take your phones out now. <laughs> and you already did this earlier. <laughs> I think I had, didn't I have this in my earlier presentation? Yeah. Um, so it'll, that'll bring you to, if you snap a photo of that, that will bring you to our school mental health toolkit online. Um, so you should get just a little pop-up up there that just says, um, you know, do you want to go to this website? And that'll bring you directly to our school mental health toolkit. I did bring one copy of it just to show you that we, you know, this is something that we've been working on um, in schools. Um, so there are a few reasons that we developed this. Um, and none of those reasons uh, has to do with wanting to be prescriptive about what schools and school districts do. Because as some of you may know, who have either been in schools in Colorado or know anything about sort of Colorado dynamics, we're very local controlled, particularly in our school districts. So if, um, so if a school district hears from, you know, our organization or the Department of Education or somebody that, you know, you have to teach this course in this way um, for this amount of time, and there are no variations from that. That's not going to go over well. I mean, it's just going to be like complete chaos. So what we tried to do is say, you know what, we're not going to be prescriptive about this, but we know that there are some best practices in school mental health. And um, so that, and so when we look at these best practices in school, well, actually, I'm going to go back. Um, when look at these best practices in school mental health, one, they're, they're sort of they're broad. So they're things like universal screening, um, trauma-informed practice, uh, making connections with community-based providers. Um, so we have these 10 best practices that you'll see if you um, snap that picture and then go to that. But the other part of it that's really important, too, is that none of these things, if you sort of do them in isolation, okay, I did a, a suicide prevention assembly. Uh, in the fall at the start of school. And so there, I've done my suicide prevention work for the year. Um, that's not going to work. It's not going to work, one, because it's sort of a one-and-done approach, and that doesn't really then embed anything into the climate and culture of schools. The other problem with it is it's not part of a bigger package of supports. So what we tried to do here is um, get advocates and school districts and leaders and policymakers and, you know, folks like all of you in the room to sort of understand the importance of this comprehensive approach to school mental health. Um, and in the context of that comprehensive approach that I just went through of mental health overall. So if you think of that array that I had up there, the green, the promotion through postvention, and then think about a comprehensive approach in schools, that's part of the bigger system. So schools, as I pointed out, have a role in each of those components. We don't expect schools to be the sole clinical provider for mental health services in communities. But if you think about it, sometimes in our rural communities, they might have a school-based health center, and that actually might be the sole 
mental health provider and physical health care provider in the community. So we're not ruling out that schools, um, we're not saying schools shouldn't be um, a provider of services, but it needs to be in the context of what else is happening in the community. Um, if, com if there are great community-based mental health providers, then the schools can develop, you know, memorandum of understanding or contract with community-based providers to, um, to use those resources that are already available, in, maybe instead of hiring a, a mental health provider in the school, and maybe they're, so maybe they've developed some sort of arrangement um, with, their, uh, with their community. So the, um, so that's the, the so the, the two reasons we um, uh, developed the School Mental Health Toolkit, and we've been going, so if Sarah Youngren were here, who's at home with her sick child, she would tell you about the 59 school districts that she's met with, um, which may sound like a lot, and it actually is a lot, but we have 178 school districts in Colorado um, and 1,888 schools in Colorado. So 59 is great, um, and we still have some work to do. So her approach has had actually become a little bit different. So instead of trying to travel around and meet with every single school district in the state, we're looking for other community partners who can help us um, sort of get this message out about school, sort of schools, um, uh, uh, schools' place in mental health uh, resources in the community. So instead of trying to meet with, you know, drive around for a month and get to all four corners of the state, we've found some great community partners and advocates, and, um, and I'll talk a little bit about our our brainwave network of advocates that we have, almost a thousand people around the state who are volunteer advocates for our organization to get messages out and help to implement stuff like this. So um, so she's been doing great work trying to get districts to um, uh, to implement uh, the sort of best practices, but not in a prescriptive way, and to look at their school services as a comprehensive approach. So as I said, schools can't do this alone. Um, so I wanted to go through sort of what looks like kind of a complicated model, but it's really not if you if you look at it um, a little more closely. So what's called an interconnected systems framework, which essentially everything you're seeing up here is essentially saying we need to all work together. We need to all sort of understand each other's resources, understand what's available both in schools and in communities, and make those intentional connections. Um, so that we don't have sort of these separate systems that are trying to, you know, all perhaps working towards the same goal, which is keeping our children and communities healthy, um, but may not be working together in doing that. So what you see here is a um, sort of a model of, uh, I mean, this is good. So what we have on this side is sort of the school pyramid of supports that can happen in schools. And over here is the community-based mental health support, so things like specialty care and integrated behavioral health and intensive home and community-based services. And so if you have expanded school mental health, you know, there's some, there's some connections in here. If you have an interconnected system, that kind of expands it all so that all of these things are connected. So if there's, a, you know, a residential treatment need for um, a significant or severe mental illness that the school has a part to play in that and they work with the community providers around sort of the educational components. And so it really just sort of enhances this model that's sort of more just of an expanded model that's, um, so an example of what this might look like for a child and family is a student is identified in school as um, sort of having some uh, challenging behavior. You know, they're, they're being disruptive in the classroom. So the school social worker comes in and maybe calls the parent and says, hey, you know, uh, I'd like to make a referral. Um, gives the parent a referral for somebody in the community that might be able to provide some services, and it's up to the parent to then go to this community provider, call them up, check with the insurance, make sure it works, and make that phone call, and then schedule an appointment and do that. So, so there's not really sort of this, like, direct interconnected um, kind of mechanism. What that might look like over here is that the, so we've got the same student and there are some um, you know, disruptive behaviors 
and the school social worker is called in and tries to help make some um, sort of modifications in the classroom and helps um, provide some sort of um, ongoing supports to that student, calls the parent, says, hey, can you come in and meet? And I'm going to bring in, um, if it's okay with you, um, this organization that we work with in the community that might be able to also sort of come in and provide some supports. And so the parent says, yeah, that sounds good. I, I agree with that. Um, so let's do that. And then they have a meeting. And the community-based provider talks to the social worker in the school about what kinds of things um, they might be able to do. And then the, the parent right then and there, when they're having that meeting, schedules a time to make an appointment to go over to the clinic. And the clinic talks to the social worker at the school. And they've managed to get through all those HIPAA and FERPA problems. If anybody's familiar with all of the privacy stuff, HIPAA and FERPA are like, ah, um, but they're really not. So they sign all the paperwork. And then the community-based provider can share information about um, like successful strategies, like what might be working, what they, how they might want to set up the environment differently in the classroom, so that that information can sort of be shared. Parents are involved. Um, it's not just sort of a, um, you know, here I, I wrote down the name of a counselor in the community. Here you go, parent. Hope everything goes well. So that's sort of the difference in what that might look like from interconnected to just sort of an expanded mental health support system. Um, so I want to just stop here and just have some conversation about school mental health and sort of what your thoughts are on the role of schools. Keep an eye on time. Um, sort of the, the uh, so a few questions is the role of schools and given some of the contemporary issues that are going on um, in our schools so and some of them um, you know really sort of difficult ones to talk about but they're happening um, unfortunately we just had another suicide on Monday um, in uh, Arapahoe County uh, it was Arapahoe High School um, I mean so we've got some really challenging issues to face um, in our state. So what role can schools play and what role should schools play in that? So I want to just have some conversation about that. So let's maybe start broadly with mental health. So does, do people have thoughts about where you see the school um, in kind of that uh, as one of the partners in how to address um, children's mental health? Do you think it has a role? Do you think schools shouldn't be in the mental health um, support business? I think that identification of referral is a place for the schools to be in terms of identifying if there's an issue and then uh, making sure that they have a linkage to whatever community supports can be available in the community. So I think in that role, we did. And I like that you added referral to that too. So identification and having some sort of like a protocol for and relationships with the community for what that actually will look like in the community. Um, which hopefully, and I don't know if this is what you had in mind, can go beyond just having a list of names. I mean, hopefully schools have developed relationships with their community providers so they kind of know about um, kind of specialties and can do a warm handoff rather than uh, kind of a, a, you know, here's the name of somebody. I don't know if they're still in practice, but why don't you give them a call and find out? So, yeah, so I like the referral part of that as well. What other kinds of things can schools do? For those of you who have children, I'm going to look at the two of you, and I'm sure others do as well, that might not have said it when you were introducing yourselves. Um, what would you expect the role of your children's school to be in supporting their social and emotional development and mental health? Being being open, having that open door policy, I like that a lot. Of, we're adding twelve, so I like that a lot of um, the schools have social workers now yeah. embedded into the schools. I think that that is so important. Um, but I also recognize that schools are really understaffed too. That there is such a huge need, um, especially with like underprivileged schools. I just think that the need is so great at times, and as a social worker working with people that are on Medicaid, I just find that 
it's difficult to meet the need. Yeah. When we're working with this high risk population, you know, high behavioral health needs, it can be really tricky. And it definitely has challenges. I think we've come a long way, but I think we have a long way to come as well. And just to put some data to what you just said um, anecdotally, so we have shortages in nurses, we have shortages in school psychologists, we have shortages in school social workers, and shortages of school counselors in our state. So we are, we need, in order to meet nationally recommended ratios, so this isn't even if, you know, somebody's working in a sort of a more challenging school district or school, in order to meet nationally recommended ratios, we need twice as many nurses as we have now in our state, twice as many school psychologists, twice as many counselors, and five times as many social workers as we have now. So we're five times short in our um, our ratios of school social. So the recommended ratio for school social workers is one to 250 students, which even that is pretty big. You know, 250 students, especially if it's in a more challenging area. Um, but um, but in Colorado, and I just showed this data, um, these data this morning, and I'm forgetting the exact number, but it's around a little over one to 1,100 um, students. Yeah. Just add to that that we also have a teacher shortage. <laughs> yes. So you yeah. know, our school districts, you know, are struggling to keep their teachers right. as well. So yeah. How so do we help that? so so teachers. So when you think about sort of the dynamics then of what's happening in a school, so if you've got um, uh, a shortage of teachers who are relatively underpaid, um, actually. Very relatively. I think we're the last in the nation, aren't we, with um, teacher pay or teacher salary? So, so if you think about that, which alone is complicated, um, and then you add to that um, sort of some of the contemporary issues that schools are facing around school safety, and then you add to that academic standards, um, you add to that high-stakes testing, and then you add to that some of the other things that um, you know schools want to be engaged in, and you know the, the PTA is asking them to do a running club every morning, and can you make sure? Which is great, but can you know school? Hey, can you make sure that the doors are open at six six thirty in the morning when we get there, and can you make sure that the cones are all set up? And so you know, adding these things that that sort of pile on, and schools are overwhelmed. Um, and when you look at how schools are funded particularly in um, uh, our sort of our rural areas of the state where property taxes, so schools are primarily in our state and many other states too, funded through property taxes um, or local taxes. And so if you look at parts of our state where those taxes, and there's not a whole lot of revenue coming in through those sources, um, that those are going to be extremely underfunded. Um, and then you look at racial disparities as well. So in Colorado, um, who was in this morning? I did an 8.30 this morning. So um, so in Colorado, you saw that um, in our non-white school, our schools that have primarily non-white students, so majority minority students, um, that in the High, the low, lowest poverty community, this is a little complicated, so I'm going to try and get it right. In the low poverty communities that are non-white, there's less school funding going into those communities than in the high poverty white communities. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. You got it? Yes, you get it, or yes, I should say it again. <laughs> so in our non-white low poverty community, majority non-white low poverty communities in our state, they have less funding going into their schools than our high poverty white communities. So that's, so what that's saying is that it's not just about socioeconomics. Um, so what are the kinds of things? What are the kinds of thing, things in schools would you um, kind of have an expectation that schools do? And then I want to talk a little bit about school safety um, because I think often, particularly in our um, uh, sort of a current, current climate of school violence, um, people tend to conflate mental health um, or more accurately mental illness with violence, 
um, which we know isn't true. Um, and you've probably heard this before, and I'll say it um, again because I don't think we can say it enough, is that people, more people with mental illness are actually the victims of crimes than the perpetrators of crime. So with um, violent crimes, um, particularly gun-related ones, uh, only about 4% of those have any connection to mental illness. Um, so 96% don't have, you can't tie it back to a mental illness. Um, however, that doesn't mean, if you go back to that continuum, that doesn't mean people have mental health just because they don't have mental illness. So the, um, the uh, World Health Organization has um, defined uh, um, health, and this is overall health, and it applies to mental health, as not not merely the absence of disease, but the present, the full presence of health. So we're not just looking at um, kind of this yes or no. Okay, are you sick? No. Okay, then you're well, because it doesn't work that way. There's a whole spectrum of mental health, and we need to our system needs to be built around that, and not just if you're not sick, you must be well, and therefore. It must be people who are ill, uh, who have some sort of mental illness, who are doing these awful things in our communities. Um, but it's much more complicated than that. So just wanted to throw that out as some context. So what are your thoughts then on sort of what schools should be doing in sort of our current climate and our current culture of suicide and, and school shootings um, and hardening tactics, metal detectors. What is that doing to schools and mental health? Just increasing the fear and anxiety and putting resources towards safety prevention versus mental health aspects. It very well could be. So I don't know if you all heard, but um, sort of increasing the fear and anxiety. So you know, walking into a school that has um, an armed guard and a metal detector, um, and um, you know perhaps some other sort of hardening things, bulletproof glass, whatever it might look like, um, can be very anxiety-provoking. Um, so how do we balance that? Well, and I would just add to that is that when they have the practice, the active shooter practices within schools, that has to contribute to anxiety too. Are you willing to engage in a little conversation about that? Okay. So what do you think? Because I, the, the range of opinions on the impact of these safety drills is huge. I mean, the range is really like from this end of the spectrum to this. So I want to hear your thoughts a little bit on the, what you think the impact is or the, um, uh, the whether the, benefit of it is worth the impact of it, um, of doing active shooter drills. What do you think? Yeah. I don't have a, the one end or the other opinion necessarily. I have kids that are in school age yet, but um, but my, my opinion is generally that if a school and a PTO and a district feels like they're incredibly important, I think that the flip side of the conversation around taking care of the students emotionally and kind of having discussions around what they look like or having kind of daily practice around building up resilience within the students is equally important if you're going to, you know, focus on this side of the spectrum. I think also kind of understanding how to build those kids up resilience-wise is equally important. Yeah. yeah. So really ma making sure that there's a balance, so maybe not taking sort of a, a side on, on whether or not we should be doing active shooter drills, but We've got to balance that with, you know, social emotional learning and and the ability to sort of t intentionally teach and practice resilience and um, and that can't be the way that we're addressing school safety. Yeah. Other thoughts on that? It's a tough issue, and I totally respect if nobody wants to even jump into that here with ten minutes remaining. <laughs> Just make yeah. a comment about that, because I'm not on either side of that, but um, I experienced those uh, hide-under-your-desk drills. Civil defense drills. In yeah. northern Montana, 
Um, I went to a country school, and I mean, and that's this is a long time ago. I'm 70 years old, so I was in grade school, and I still remember them. I remember when we'd have the drill, the teacher rang a bell, and we'd have to get under our desk. Like, that's really going to help. I mean, if there is a nuclear attack, I mean, it was... Through a false sense of security. It, yeah, and I still recall it. I mean, I don't... I don't feel like it's impacted my life in a poor way. But Montana had a lot of those Minuteman missile silos, so we did a lot of those drills. So I guess that's part of why I wonder what kids are going through, because theirs are much more intense than ours were. We would often get the giggles under the desk. Yeah. So I think, I mean, what you bring up is a good point. One, is doing a drill effective? And is it sort of um, our, our students are sort of understanding whether that's really going to sort of help in one of these urgent situations or the, the, the urgency of it? But I think the other question about it too is, um, I mean, not just is it going to be effective, um, but um, you know, what are kids thinking during that time? What are what's going through a kid's mind when they're doing an active? I mean, especially for kids who might have already had some trauma in their lives. Um, I was just reading about a district, this wasn't in Colorado, um, who was doing active shooter um, drills um, and try, trying to simulate some of the circumstances around it. So like um, like uh, doing, I think, a dry ice or something, but so that sort of smoke would rise up throughout the hallways. Um, and, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, okay, what do we do with other kinds of drills? So in schools, you know, there are, um, in some parts of eastern Colorado, they do tornado drills. Um, they do, we do fire drills. Have you ever heard of a fire drill where somebody goes into the hallway and lights a little fire? <laughs> Just so you know that what the fire is going to look like? I mean, we don't do that with those. Or a tornado drill where somebody brings in the big wind machine and makes a lot of noise like a freight train outside and says, okay, now we're doing our tornado drills and we're going to make it real. Um, we don't do that with those things. But, um, and, and there's a reason we don't do that, because uh, those can be, um, I mean, are they really, ne is it necessary? Um, but also, I mean, those things can be really triggering or traumatizing for kids. Um, so I think just um, thinking about the impact of how we've responded to current events in the world, and have we created other problems or other issues that we now need to address because of how we've responded to other events. It's complicated, yeah. Um, I just wanted to share, um, I actually grew up in Montana as well, up in northern Montana, Shelby. Um, but um, working in the schools, I, um, I've been a participant in a lot of um, lockdowns, and, um, and it's probably one of the reasons why I'm not in schools at this time, because I could not, the last time that there was a lockdown, it was really traumatizing for because I actually really did think that um, <laughs> that I was that that was like the day that I people could die, um, and it was actually just it was um, it was more of a kid just bringing in a uh, one of those like pellet guns, right? Um, but there was a loud sound that happened around that same time that there was a lockdown, and it created a lot of stress for a lot of kids. And this is at a high school, um, and I didn't have one of those keys to lock the door because that person that had that key had left to the bathroom because we were went from lockdown to lockout and then the situation occurred and kids were like jumping out. It was, it was a scary situation. But the events after that, I got to go back to my car and I got to just like sit in my car and, and feel my feelings. And it was, that, that was my space. But all these kids had to stay in the school and deal with that stress and not every teacher is um, trained in mental health or trauma-informed, um, and so I felt bad for those kids that had to stay there. And their parents couldn't pick them up, even though those parents wanted to, you know, because they, there was a protocol to keep those kids in school. And the way they dealt, the way this particular school district or the school dealt with it was to just kind of like, everybody calm down, we'll talk about it, like, tomorrow. 
um, go back to your classrooms, carry on as normal, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, it just, I felt, I mean, I wish I could have taken the kids that I was working with just out with me. Yeah. But, and, then, and then that school also had a lot of refugees, um, a large refugee population. Those kids were crying. And so I think the response <laughs> could have been a lot better. And I think that that's a big problem. But I also think what's leading kids to do that, right? I mean, we all have some kind of thoughts around that, but what what is leading kids to want to go and, and shoot a school? Or even, like, bring a, a gun like that to school, you know, to scare people. And, you know, and I think that brings up the point. I, mean, I appreciate all of what you just said in that last part of it, particularly around, um, you know, if we're, if the way that we're responding primarily is by um, doing drills and sort of some of these school hardening tactics, we're missing a big opportunity. I mean, we're missing that huge opportunity and that continuum that I had up here of all of that stuff we can do at sort of that that promotion um, and prevention end. So, um, I mean, a lockdown drill, if you think about it, it may, on the surface, sound like prevention, um, but it's actually very it's a very reactive um, thing to do. So it's essentially preparing for disaster. And um, but if we think about well, what could we what could we look at at the at the sort of upstream end of this? Um, things like resilience and teaching wellness and doing things within schools so that um, you know we can sort of keep an eye on the interconnectedness of students. And you know we know that there are some protective factors. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the um, the Healthy Kids Colorado survey. It's a survey that um, most school districts, I think, except for two, are participating in in Colorado. And it's one of the best sources of information that we have around um, middle and high school students and their feelings and perceptions around um, various issues, including things like um, bullying and suicide, and um, but also protective factors. So what we've seen from the data that's come out of that um, is that students who have more access to some of these protective factors are less likely to either seriously consider or attempt suicide. And some of these protective factors are things like having a trusted adult to go to, um, having uh, not been bullied um, either electronically or in school, so it asks about both kinds of bullying, and we see, um, which I'm sure is no surprise, that those who are have been um, uh, bullied electronically um, and bullied in person in school um, have higher rates of seriously considering suicide or higher rates of um, having sort of had depressive episodes. So, um, so thinking about some of those sort of even more upstream things that we can be doing, and I'm not going to say. Um, instead of some of these other activities that are going on, like school resource officers and, and drills. And I'm not, I'm not taking a position on that here. I can take a position on that in other places, but I'm not going to do that here. But, but in addition to some of those things um, that, you know, obviously our school districts feel are important, in addition to those things, even though we've got under-resourced schools, some of these things are no cost. Some of these things are, I mean... If we could have every teacher trained in youth mental health first aid, um, youth mental health first aid almost always is a free program, and it's offered for free. It's an eight-hour course. Um, so the cost there would probably be like teacher time. So maybe there would be, have to be a substitute if it's during the school day, but maybe it could be done on a professional development day. Um, so thinking about what are some of these things that could proactively be put in place that really are very simple strategies that can have big impact. Um, so if you're not familiar with youth mental health first aid, um, do you, are there people who know about youth mental health first aid? No. Um, so there's mental health first, okay, so there's, there's first aid and CPR, just like for health stuff. And we've probably all gone through that at one point in our lives. But then there's also mental health first aid. And there's also youth mental health first aid which essentially is kind of like um, uh, taking a CPR class, I mean, taking a first aid class. And I don't even want to say it's like taking a, um, a, um, a CPR class because mental health first aid is even more kind of upstream than that. It's about recognizing signs. 
It's about how to talk to people, how to use some, you know, what kinds of language to use, how to kind of identify signs of distress. Um, whereas you think about what we learned about um, giving chest compressions and breathing, we don't want it to get to that point. Um, so it's not quite as if I would, I would more equate it with first aid. Like we want to sort of know what kinds of things to look for, to know, um, you know, that if, if somebody's bleeding, how do we support them and, and help treat that or at least triage while we're waiting for somebody who's an expert to come help. Um, so those kinds of things. So I know we're um, just about out of time. And um, so I want to just sort of offer my contact information. And as I said, Sarah Youngren um, has been doing a lot of work um, directly. I hired her to, to be out there in the community to do direct work with schools. Um, Elora is also doing a lot of our school mental health work. She's in process now of working with us on a national version of this school mental health toolkit that um, you all now have saved in your phones because you shut the QR code. Um, so feel free to reach out, get in touch if you have other questions that we didn't go through or that weren't um, comfortable and, you know, to ask with other people. I'm happy to respond and, and um, have people get in touch with me outside of here. Oh. Anything else? Anybody's like a pressing issue? Well, thank you all very much. Hopefully this was helpful. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.